0: kids ASP Coleman placeholder ID Eagles joke It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 266 with John Harrop, recorded live Monday August 20th 2007 .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter by bringing world and SharePoint training on-site for your team. Online at www.franklins.net Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And by Code Magazine, The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says, there's no F and C sharp, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET
1: Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. It's our Thursday show. Richard's here. Hi, Richard. Hi, sir. How are you?
2: I'm well. Hey Netherlands coming up very soon. That's right, September seventeenth and eighteenth in Papendal. It's Great conference. The SDC conference. We've done this before. We did it last year. Right. We talked about this on Tuesday with Remy. That's right. Yeah.
1: And uh we're gonna be there talking and we're also going to be there doing a
2: live Mondays. That's right. And I am pretty sure we'll probably get a dot net rocks or two. Absolutely. Out of it. At in least fact. I talked to Sean Walker, because Sean Walker and his .NET Nuke gang are going to SDC this year. Yeah, that's right. They're running a whole track, or even two, just on .NET Nuke. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. We could get him to do his show. So, I talked to him, and he's putting together a panel on the future directions of .NET Nuke. Oh, that's awesome. And I said, dude... Let us record this as a show. So he's all excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're really going to get some insight into where .NET Nuke is going. Cause I think there's some big changes in store. For and hopefully .NET. we'll get some feedback from the audience too. Cause I want to hear what other people think
1: about it. Yeah. All right. Let's get right into it with Better Know a Framework. Boom. And this is just uh, my attempt to uh, give you some pointers into the .NET framework to classes that you may or may not know about and or need to know about. And this is one of those times where you might need to know that you don't need it. Okay. Does that make sense, Richard? That does make sense. All right. You know, you save me a lot of time when you tell me there's places I don't need to go. That's right. There's a couple of places you don't need to go, and I will be visiting those classes, but here's one of them, System.ApplicationException. Exception. System.applicationException used to be a best practice in earlier versions of .NET. We thought it was a good idea to differentiate application exceptions from system exceptions. Right. Exceptions that an application makes should be derived from system.applicationException, and uh, things that the system uh, does are all derived from system exception. Turns out that that's not the best practice anymore. It didn't really add any value. Because nobody looks at the base class when they, they're selecting which exception happened. They're just, you know, oh, it was this one. Okay, this is my case. I do this. An error is an error. An error is an error, right. So it turns out that the best practice now is not to use system.applicationException as the base class for application-generated exceptions. Just go ahead and use system.exception. Okay. That is the best practice. And I'll put up uh, a link to the source of that information in the MSDN library
2: for your perusal at a later time. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. Would you like an email? Yes, I would. I need an email right now. Well, I've got an email from an old friend of ours, Rob Windsor. Hey, Rob. He writes every so often. Toronto. Yeah, Toronto, user group leader, all around good guy. Very good and guy. Involved in speaker idol. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He did great. Uh, and this was about the Silverlight show with Sean Wildermuth. Oh, yes. I remember this email. Yeah. Hey, guys, I have some comments about the show with Sean Wildermuth on Silverlight. The bulk of the conversation focused on media, WPF, and XAML. While yeah. these are all important topics when discussing Silverlight, they don't address the most important part of this technology, the managed runtime in the browser with yeah. version 1.1 and later. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you use ASP.NET as your UI, i.e. no XAML, you are going to be able to write your client-side event handlers in managed code for example, as Ajax-like behavior with VB and C-sharp. Yep. You're going to be able to share custom business classes between the server and client side code, so one set of business rules and validator logic, and you're going to be able to call web services client side. You're going to be able to store user profile information using isolated storage on the client machine, and so on. Yeah. The browser-deployed app will truly be a smart client even when using web controls to interact with the user. Stefan Schakow did a talk at Mix showing how to do some of this stuff. Even though Sean wasn't convinced, I think you were bang on when mentioning the quotes about Silverlight changing everything. Yeah, I seriously think so. Also, there was a question about the role of the DLR. If I understand this correctly, the DLR will allow your IronPython, IronRuby, VB, or Jscript code to be dynamically compiled, or is that interpreted on the browser, uh-huh. so you don't have to deploy compiled assemblies with your web pages. John Lamb has a blog post that covers some of the other details around Silverlight and the DLR, and I shrinksterized the link to John Lamb's blog at shrinkster.com slash s6m. So that's Sierra 6 Mike. Awesome. Thanks, guys. to keep on rocking. Rob Windsor. Ah, excellent. Thanks, Rob,
1: for that email, and I agree with you. I think uh, this is this is earth-shattering stuff, Silverlight, and I, th- I just think the tools aren't there quite yet uh, in order for us to take advantage of it. But as soon as it becomes just part of the regular Visual Studio
2: package, you're going to see a lot of great software written for it. Absolutely. And, you know, to put a fine point on this, the show we did with Sean Wildermuth was about 1.0 because I wanted to yep. dig deep on what was shipped Right. That's all. So we really steered clear of the 1.1, although it's hard to get away from the CLR. Sure. It's such a big deal, but it is a very different product than what's in 1.0. So we focused on 1.0 for that show. I will be back when we get 1.1 further along. You better believe it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'll be back in spades. And I don't, you know, he's totally right about the DLR role, that this is about being able to provide those languages in a code form right to the client with all that capability. So that you're not going to have different code for what shows up in the browser versus what shows up in your server. Mm -hmm. Uh, One
1: more announcement uh, besides SDC is that uh, Greg Brill is still hiring people in New York City. uh, Sharp developers down there who want to take take the bull by the horns and hit the big apple. Live rent-free in Manhattan for a year. That's right. You heard me. They're going to pay for your rent and uh, you're going to work with some amazing people in the financial sector in some of the bigger financial institutions in Manhattan. It could be very exciting. Read all about it at shrinkster.com slash kh6. All right, Richard, let's, uh, let's bring up John Harrop. John studied physics and chemistry at the University of Cambridge with an emphasis on computational science. His Ph.D. work was written in a mix of Mathematica and C++. Although he was taught the Functional Programming Language Standard ML in the first undergrad year, Mathematica was his first serious use of Functional Programming Language. After he left academia, he discovered that the OCaml Programming Language combines the benefits of Mathematica's brevity and expressive power with C++'s performance and static testing, and that led him to write, OCaml for Scientists! and found Flying Frog Consultancy Limited at the beginning of 2005 to publish the book. Interest in OCaml was so strong that he made it his hallmark and consulted for several companies, most notably Wolfram Research, Microsoft Research, and Zensource. Meanwhile, Don Syme had been creating a new programming language for .NET that draws a lot upon the merits of OCaml. Consequently, Fsharp can be said to combine the brevity of Python with the performance of sharp. Microsoft commissioned him to write F-sharp for scientists earlier this year, and that book should hit the shelves early
2: next year. Would you please welcome John Harrop? Hi, John. Hi. So we've done a bunch of shows around uh, Microsoft research into languages, and I, I – yep. I, it really came about earlier this year. I got a chance to actually sit and talk with a bunch of the Microsoft research guys and got really fascinated about the fact that the CLR just lends itself to playing with languages. It certainly does. Cause ML, ML's not new and, and Haskell and all of the, even OCaml, these languages have been around for a while. It just seems like the CLR has made them so much more approachable because you can get at them as part of a, a regular development environment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the ML family of languages, I think, is about 35 years old now. Yeah. And it started on all about theorem provers, and they just invented a new language to try and help them write theorem provers. But they discovered that the language that they'd invented was almost more useful than the fear that they ended up writing in the language. And so that kind of caught on, and they built uh, the standard ML language out of that, and that's the sort of English or American version. And they also built the OCaml language, which is the French variation.
1: Well, i got to say right off the bat here that there's a bunch of uh, people who saw the Sharp, probably C Sharp programmers, you know, doing line-of-business applications, and now they're scratching their head saying, what kind of show am I in for here? So uh, just a little disclaimer, if you know nothing about F Sharp and about functional languages, then uh, this would be a good primer, but it it has nothing to do with line of business applications, has nothing to do with your standard uh, .NET programming. So uh, just to get that out of the way, why don't we start at the beginning and talk about functional languages. You you mentioned ML and and threw around a figure of 35 years ago. Um, So just tell us in general what these functional languages are, which F-sharp is the latest incantation of. Incarnation, I think, is the word there. Incarnation, incarnation so.
3: Incantation. That's funny. So uh, basically, F sharp draws upon this this family of languages that are all primarily designed to manipulate trees. And the reason that they originally manipulated trees was because they were they were manipulating what they call terms, which is basically a program. So they were ideal for writing compilers and interpreters. But it, it turns out that when you've got the ability of all of these languages, which includes F sharp, then it's so easy to use trees that you actually end up using trees far more than you ever do in, in ordinary object-oriented languages or procedural languages. And so, for example, you find trees everywhere if you're looking at graphs for, for network theories, for looking at you know websites and how they're interlinked, or if you're looking at scene graphs and graphics, they can all be represented as trees. And it turns out that languages like F-sharp are fantastic for ni- manipulating any kind of data structure along those lines.
1: So when you say trees you just said it data structures we're not really talking about when I think of function functions I think of you know some code that I write that returns a value this is a little bit different uh, definition of the of the of the word functional isn't it
3: well uh, functional really means different things to different people so the Haskell community which is is a very big functional programming language but they're on functional programming is they're very pure. They're very sort of mathematical and clinical about the way they do things. And so, they basically completely prohibit side effects. And that's a major part of their description of functional programming languages. But whoa, 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 whoa. Side on. effects? Yeah. so Sorry. So, side, side effects as in uh, doing I.O., so printing to the screen or Oh, uh, doing anything that that has an effect on the world around you. Basically, I see. so they're very sort of pure compositional, purely mathematical. So, in the so the program phase, would
1: so. look like operate, you know, running. Please wait, and then produce an answer. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, they have it invented very sophisticated ways to to sort of get around it, and it it, it ends up looking just like a normal sort of C program. Say. So yeah. you end up with a bunch of statements one after the other, but behind the background, you know, one of the side effects—well, say side effects—in the English sense. One of the uh, one of the implications of the way that they do things is that it becomes very obvious when parts of your program are going to be doing side effects. You have to explicitly state that they will be. And the compiler checks all of this. So large chunks of program you can still write that sort of take trees, like like a compiler, say, would take a piece of tree that represents a piece of input program and does various transformations on it and converts it ultimately into machine code. And there's nothing about that until you actually get to the part where it spits out the machine code at the end that really inherently involves side effects.
1: So, John, can we step back a little bit and um, try to explain to the layperson just what makes a functional language different from, say, a procedural language, from object-oriented programming? Um, what is the essence of it? And, and maybe to illustrate that, give me an example of, of, a, of, a, of a, an app or an applet or an application or a script or something that you would write with this that, that makes more sense to do with a functional language.
3: Okay, so I'd say that uh, the real essence of functional programming in general, which includes F-sharp and Lisp and various other functional languages, is the ability to have uh, functions as values, which means that you you don't just have integers and floating point numbers and, you know, classes, objects as, as your values, you also have just functions. So you can just write a function that takes a number n and, and spits out the number n squared, and that, that is a function, and that is a value in your program in a functional programming language. That so you can take that value and you can put it into a data structure. But the real power of functional programming comes from the ability to write functions that, because you can hand them around as values, you can pass them as arguments to other functions. So, for example, you can take a function that's got a piece of code missing in the middle, and you parameterize it over that piece of code that's missing. And that's that's a classic uh, called a higher order function in functional programming. That's a classic use of functional programming.
1: So, if I'm hearing you right, and just to clarify this point, the the function itself is an argument to an, uh, a a procedure, a method, a something.
3: Uh, another function.
1: Another function. Yep, yeah, yeah. So, and um, and you say this function has yeah. it's the, every function itself has a piece missing, a variable, if you will,
3: it can and that be. variable it can, can
1: be. also be another function.
3: Exactly. That's exactly right. right. That's, That's one of the ways of doing it. So another way of doing it is called currying, which means that you have a function that returns a function as its return value. I see. That's, that's <laughs> that just sounds work, like right? trouble. This is actually a really, really cool idea, right? So, so you've got a function, and in that in that sense, you sort of end up with a cascade So you can have a function that you you give it one parameter, its argument, and it returns you another function. So,
1: is there such a thing as an infinite loop that cannot be broken? Is that is that a danger of just? Well,
3: in reality, you'd, you'd only make them finite. So you'd say, so you're gonna you're gonna like partially apply something. So the standard example I give to scientists is just. Um, differentiation you know from mathematics right? right so you're going to differentiate a function with respect to a variable and the answer is itself another function
1: yeah so it seems like it lends itself to recursive uh type of applications
3: absolutely yeah so a lot of the time you, you take all of the while loops and for loops that you get in in sort of imperative languages and those get replaced by recursion in functional languages
2: i see Rather than using typical looping constructs, you would do this as recursion, but with some kind of iterator that gives it a finite limit.
1: And this is better for... For types of applications where there's a large amount of data and recursion has to happen sort of not in a predetermined way, but maybe in a natural, more data-driven way?
3: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment. So, I mean, it really goes back to trees. So, I mean, the thing is a tree is itself a recursive data type. Sure. The definition of a tree is, is recursive because the child trees, the branches, are themselves trees. Yeah. So the way that you'd write a program in a functional language that manipulates a tree is you write a function that it knows what to do with a piece of tree. But when it when it wants to look into a branch, it applies itself to the branch. I see. That's where you get recursion from. So you, know, I
2: mean, you led this conversation off, Carl, with this whole idea that this is not really a business application. But I suddenly think about any kind of hierarchical data where I don't necessarily know the depth of that hierarchy. Say I'm dealing with something like a bill of materials, right. you know, where I don't know how many parts make up a finished unit. Yeah. This language would just eat that up. It would have a fine time going through that. Well, to calculate a total, in, in other words.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's the same as, you know, you could say object orientation isn't really business-related, but the fact is object-oriented programming is hugely important in business because it's got loads of useful properties. Sure. And functional programming is basically the same. I mean, when I first came from C++ to OCaml, when I discovered functional programming, it gave me exactly the same sort of revelation that you get when you first grok object-oriented programming. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you sort of come to realize that when you've got all of these trees and data structures, and you, you see problems in a different way, and you think, well, you know, I, I could attack this by building a class hierarchy and using UML and working out, you know, actors and trying to tie things together, or alternatively, uh, I could look at it in the functional paradigm. And you know, sometimes one is better, and sometimes the other's better.
1: Right, and that's just the whole idea, isn't it? That exactly, once you yeah. understand the fundamentals of it, all the all of the problems that can be solved with it suddenly flood your brain, and that's when you have that plop that sort of aha moment. And, exactly. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: So the, so the kinds of real applications, I, I, like you said, Richard, you brought up the idea of a bill with many layers and lots and lots of, uh, you know, possibilities of, of the tree of, uh, and how to calculate that writing the code to do that is you're going to be calling yourself recursively a lot. And, and I guess that would, you know, if you're doing that in VBNet or C sharp, that's going to be a lot of code, and I guess the the prototype for that in a functional language will look much cleaner, I imagine.
3: Yeah, so another benefit there that, that F-Sharp has is the pattern matching. So I don't know if you've looked at F-Sharp's pattern matching at all.
1: So pattern matching, are we talking like regular expression pattern matching, this kind of thing?
3: It's... it's- Similar to that kind of thing, but the, the main difference, well, I suppose in, in, in regular expressions, there's, there's a similarity as well. So if you have a regular expression that you say, you know, go search this string and try and find this substring, but you, you give it sort of variables in the bit that it's searching for. So you could say, you know, say in the case, of DNA, this could be a, a C, a T, or an A, but the rest of it's got to follow this exact pattern. And then you name part of what you get. So you can sort of say, you know, when you find a match that matches this regular expression, I-, I want you to rip out this piece and tell me exactly what string it did match.
2: Now I'm starting to get the idea that this is a great language for writing languages in because it's got all the strengths of the things that language parsers need. Exactly. And pattern pattern matching and and recursive analysis of data where you're making multiple iterations into the data. That's exactly what a parser needs to do.
3: That. Absolutely right, yep. So they they have a lot of libraries, and F-Sharp actually bundles in the standard distribution lots of very powerful libraries for manipulating uh, grammars and writing lexes and passes and all this kind of stuff, but it is fantastic for that kind of thing. But to go go back a bit, so you were saying regular expressions, but regular expressions, they're very uh, sort of sequential in the way that they act, right? So you, you give it a string, which is just a sequence of characters, and it matches over the string. But the big difference with F-sharp's pattern matching is that it, it can do that, but it can also pattern match over trees. So you can take a tree uh-huh. that could, for example, be a piece of program, or it could be a piece of a database response, or it could be a piece representing maybe the links on part of the Internet. So, uh, And you can pattern match over it and say, look, if this matches this kind of structure of tree, then do the following. And if it matches this kind of structure of tree, then do something slightly different. Ah. And every time you say, you know, does it match this pattern? You can name parts of the pattern and say, well, whatever subtree occurs here, I don't mind, but call it G, and then you can refer to G in the action.
1: So you mentioned the word purity before. What uh, yeah. what do you mean by that exactly?
3: So you have pure and impure functional languages. So purely functional languages means that they're completely declarative. They have no side-effecting parts. So you you don't have a print statement. uh, You don't have anything to set up network connections and sockets and all this kind of stuff. It's just purely combining pieces of data structure and breaking things down. So it's
1: number crunching. That's it.
3: Basically, yes, exactly number crunching, but with no mutation. So you're not allowed to say, you know, here's an array. I'm going to change that one element of the array. You're not allowed to do that in a purely functional setting.
2: Because in a purely functional setting, you you have an input, whatever that may be, yeah, and then you get an output, whichever whatever that may be. There can't be any. Ch- it's but they're not necessarily directly related. You're not altering an existing structure. You're creating a new structure that is the output.
3: Exactly. So there's no alteration in place, but at the same time, there's there's an interesting mix that that's a very important part of functional programming. Uh, that basically means that if your input is a tree and because you've got a pure language you know nothing can be mutated, right? So you know that nobody else could come and tinker with your tree behind your back which means okay. that when you've got a tree your output could be a very similar but slightly different tree and a lot of people when they come to functional programming think thinks that that means that you have to copy the entire tree but that's not actually true because every time that you find a piece of tree like a whole branch of tree that's exactly the same as it was in the input all you do is refer back to the original, right? So there's no need to do copying in that in that sense, which is why. But as,
2: and as long as everyone follows the rule of not altering the original, then you're never going to have a problem with this. You're only creating a uh, an output, which is the may, per, could be perhaps the differences of what you would have altered on that on the original.
3: Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I mean that that's basically what it is. It's like storing a disk.
2: It's effectively a delta.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's effectively storing the change.
2: So suddenly I'm thinking in terms of this is a great language for concurrency and for multiple parallel processing.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah. So if you stick, uh, and I've actually done this. So one of our products is a, is a visual, visualization library, which does a lot of manipulation of scene graphs, and it's meant for sort of scientific visualization. And it was originally written in OCaml, and it was single-threaded, and it's about two hundred and fifty thousand lines of OCaml, which is which is a very big OCaml project. Yeah,
2: I, I thought the hallmark of functional programming was brevity.
3: <laughs> oh, it is. It is. But I mean, you know, the equivalent libraries for doing it. I mean, that well, calculates the
1: national debt in real time, maybe. <laughs>
3: It actually came from a C++ project that was several times more code. Right. So you got it down
2: um, to 250k.
3: So we got it down to 250,000 lines of code, which we were very proud of. But also, it became five times faster uh, when we moved from C++ to Camel, which was pretty amazing. And then when we we just recently, we've, we're actually still in the middle of doing this, but we ported the, the main core of about 50,000 lines of code to F-sharp. But one of the things that F-sharp makes much easier than a Camel is concurrency. And Although that program wasn't completely purely functional, massive chunks of it were actually purely functional. A lot of it was just manipulating trees and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it turns out that, that I only had to put in four mutexes in the entire 50,000 lines of code to make the whole thing thread safe. And then it just runs in parallel on multiple CPUs.
1: All right, we'll get to that in a second. But um, l- one more thing about purity, which is it, it, I'm sort of gleaning from what you're saying that purity is the goal. Is purity
3: a goal? It's more of an option. It's more of an option. So if you have a situation where, you know, you, you know that it's not terribly performance critical, but you, you say you want it to run concurrently really easily, then just choosing to implement it the pure way makes that so much easier. I so see. if you take a sort of heavily imperative, you know, application and you try to take something where, you know, you typically you'd be looking at adding it maybe a 1,000 blocks, in a, in a decent-sized program, when you try and make it thread-safe, and the sort of all of the different possible interactions there is just a complete nightmare. And a lot of programs that, that currently run single-threaded, you know, as, as we move to having more and more multi-core computers, it's going to be a complete nightmare to try and get them to run safely concurrently. But if you choose to write in a purely functional style, that does typically mean that your programs run several times more slowly. But at the same time, it means that they'll be future-proof when it comes to concurrency.
2: Yeah, you're trading off performance of a single iteration for, perform- for consistency across multiple iterations.
3: Exactly, mm. yeah. yeah. So it's a good long-term bet in a lot of cases.
1: You know, when comparisons of web development components come into play, vendors start tossing in cliches like complete tool set of controls, superior performance, empowering users and hosts of other buzzwords. But at the end of the day, what matters most to you, the developer? For our friends at Telerik, the answer boils down to simply getting your job done, like saving precious time by customizing stubborn controls at design time, or skinning new applications in no time. And how about no browser compatibility issues? That's a big one. Take the Telerik Ajax offering, for example. The product was designed to quickly get you up and running with this new, yet complex technology, and it just works. Forget about writing tricky JavaScript. Forget about making end-to-end modifications to your application. What's best is that you can count on a wide range of resources, sample apps, tutorials, active forums, and, of course, Telerik's renowned support team. After all, there is a reason why 89% of Telerik's customers choose to renew their subscriptions. Experience that for yourself by testing a trial version of the most reliable UI suite for ASP.net at www. T e l e r i k. dot com. Okay, uh, there's another word that I heard you say um, in passing, and then we need a little more clarification, which is currying.
3: Currying, yeah. So that, that's just when a function returns another function. Oh, I see. That's all that was. That's the the, the official technical term for
2: it. Okay. Then you would just wouldn't that that returned function then be executed as well? Or aren't you now into some kind of recursive processing?
3: Uh, Well, so you've got a function, and when you give it its argument, it returns you another function that's then waiting to get its argument. I see. So it could be a completely separate function. So uh, the derivative example is a nice one. So you've got your derivative function, which is a higher-order function, and it's a current function. So it's higher-ordered because its argument is a function. Right. Right. So you're going to compute the derivative of some function. So So you 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 pass the function in. But then you also get the function back, and that function that you get back is the derivative of the function that you put in. In theory, you're
2: simplifying here. Strictness. What is that?
3: Strictness? Oh, good question. This is getting pretty technical now. Uh, Strictness is, I think, making sure that you evaluate your arguments to a function before you evaluate the function call itself. So
0: that's that's
3: something where F-sharp is basically the same as Python and C++ and C-sharp and all of the other languages that you'll be used to. Um, but it's really uh, the difference is between uh, wow. l- lazy and eager and strict and something else. Yeah. I'm, th-
1: I'm thinking that your recursion is done backwards rather than forward. It's almost like it's gone in reverse order.
3: It, is very similar to that, yeah. So, so it boils down to if uh, the difference is really with lazy evaluation, which is exactly that. So it's kind of called by need. So you describe an entire computation, but the computer, the language doesn't actually do anything until you say, well, give me the answer. And then it just <laughs> works out exactly what it needs to, to get the answer that you requested.
2: Interesting. Now, again, that's that just feels so much like a language parser. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't know what I need to resolve yet until I look at the whole of what you're asking.
3: Yep, yep. That is yeah. So it's like you know LL one, so it just looks ahead one token or two tokens if it needs to. But that, that's actually the technique technique that uh, Microsoft Excel uses. So in Excel, you've got a big spreadsheet. And it knows when you go in there and you change just one particular cell, it knows exactly which other cells it has to recalculate without having to recalculate the entire thing.
2: Right. And and that was just a natural performance requirement. They couldn't recalculate the whole spreadsheet every time. It took forever.
3: Right. So
1: you
2: you try and resolve what is affected by this alteration and only recompute those elements.
1: I love how we've uh, used Excel as the the way to demonstrate a a concept in, in a functional language. That's awesome.
3: That is pretty. A lot of people actually say that Excel is the world's most popular functional programming language, which is oh, a pretty wow. strong argument for that. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, everybody's intimately familiar with the way that you work in Excel and the fact that it, it has all of these properties, but you tend not to sort of really think about it. You tend not to think, well, how could I work that into my Python program?
2: Right, yeah, and you think about something like uh, a an interest calculation that, Im, or, or a, an exchange calculation that impacts a, a big spreadsheet where you just change that one value and it ripples across all those other cells. Yeah. F-sharp would have that same sort of behavior where you fed a value in and all these other functions executed on it.
3: Oh, yeah, so that, that's exactly the kind of thing that you can do in F-sharp that, that, that's much easier in F-sharp than it would be in sort of, you know, Iron Python or C-sharp, I think.
1: So I'm, I'm trying to relate this to something uh, into a database, you know, like a, like a SQL database, and trying to see how these things would work together. As you know, we have the CLR in SQL Server now, and uh, I'm thinking data mining. Are there applications in data mining for a functional language?
3: Um, I think there's some pretty huge applications for functional languages and data mining. So, so one of the guys, or the little groups who, who do this a lot is actually in Microsoft Research itself. So it's the, um, the Xbox group there. And they have terabyte databases of sort of the results of people's games and how well people did and what sort of style of play they used and all this kind of stuff. And they used, uh, use F sharp actually to do all the data mining on that kind of stuff to work out, you know, better algorithms to try and match players online for Xbox games.
1: Yeah, it seems like a natural fit. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how F sharp um, accesses data. I guess if it's a CLR language, it has access to any of the other parts of the framework. And that's the benefit. Huh?
3: That's one of the most amazing things, actually, coming from the background of sort of C, C++ no camel as I did, is uh, that the common language runtime is just incredible when it comes to being able to interoperate with other things.
1: Yeah, it's not so much the, the kind of plumbing you see in a research type language you know, in an academic kind of language.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's really quite incredible. So I've been trying to write a chapter of my book on interoperability and it's proving really hard to just make it long enough to be a viable chapter because it's, it's currently about six pages long and I've already covered Excel interoperability and MATLAB interoperability and Mathematica interoperability <laughs> and all the rest of it. Because wow. all you do is just open a DLL and you've got all the commands there. You know, you can do whatever you want. You can say MATLAB, you know, do this FFT for me and give me the results and feed it directly into an Excel spreadsheet. And you're looking at about three lines of code.
1: We haven't talked about Mathematica and MATLAB and those kinds of things, but tell us briefly about what these types of applications are for.
3: Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of different scientific applications that, that, that scientists, you know, working scientists, both in academia and, and in industry, use. And Excel is very big, if they're, you know, particularly among experimentalists. But a lot of people do more computational stuff and very computationally intensive, you know, spending days doing computations on number crunching, trying to model, you know, aircraft, wings, this kind of stuff. And they use languages like MATLAB and Mathematica. And these are all very expensive technical computing environments. And they incorporate, you know, decades of research into all these kinds of things and provide absolutely gigantic standard libraries full of numerical tools and stuff. And I think this is one of the areas that F sharp is, is going to move into. And as well as just being able to interoperate with them easily, I think it's actually going to try and assimilate a lot of their capabilities.
1: I see. And so, you know, large large uh, formulas, lots of different ways that uh, you can put things together and do calculations. Do do these programs like Mathematica and MATLAB, do they take advantage of supercomputing or grid computing or anything like this? uh, Or do they work on a standard desktop machine?
3: Some of them do take advantage of grid computing and supercomputers, but I think mostly they target the sort of workstation market because there are so many more you know, users, bigger market, bigger license potential and earnings from that. Um, but Mathematica certainly has a great computing thing. I'm sure that uh, MATLAB does.
2: Well, and I got to think, you don't know when you start that this is a massive computational challenge. I think you, you start tinkering on your local workstation with Mathematica, playing with a particular solution and then run into, wow, this is going to take days and days and days. But now I'm in a language that probably is pretty easy to port to a grid computing scenario.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think that's actually where F-sharp is really going to make serious inroads. So a lot of people will, will still carry on developing and prototyping in languages like MATLAB and Mathematica, but these languages are generally interpreted, and they're generally very, very slow for a lot of common operations, and so people will find that they can interoperate easily with F-sharp, and they'll find that if they just write their algorithms in F-sharp instead of in MATLAB or Mathematica, I mean, they'll typically run something like a 100 times faster. Right. And so the savings on, you know, because going to grid computing and supercomputers, that's really laborious. That's a huge amount of work. So if you can get a factor of a hundred, then that's, that's well worth having.
1: So F sharp is really one of the most, uh, are you saying it's one of the most performant, uh, functional languages? Cause there are dozens, aren't there?
3: Oh yeah. There are dozens. They all have, you know, different strengths and weaknesses. And a lot of them, like a camel is, is primarily under Linux and Mac OS X. But so that's, that's a very standalone language, which has pros and cons. I mean, there are several things where, where a camel is significantly faster than F-sharp. But at the same time, you don't get all of the interoperability. But if you, if you sort of compare F-sharp to other languages, it gives the performance of C-sharp. So there's a lot of uh, benchmark information comparing C-sharp to other languages. And if you look at sort of numerical computing, a lot of that C-sharp is actually extremely competitive, considering it's a managed language.
2: Sure. But ultimately, yeah, ultimately all this stuff is compiling to IL anyway.
3: Exactly, yes. I mean, with something like Iron Python, there's a lot of overheads. So you know, the compiler has to insert a lot of runtime checks, the types, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And you don't get that with C-sharp, and F-sharp copies the C-sharp way of doing things is completely statically typed. Yeah, all you just opened inserted. up a
1: can of worms there, John, so I'm <laughs> yeah. going to go down that rabbit hole. What about dynamic uh, F-sharp? Is it dynamic?
3: The uh, No, no, it's not. It's static, and it's got type inference, which means that you don't generally have to explicitly declare your types. It will just look at your code, and it will work out from the way that you structured your code what types it is that you're acting upon. But they're all statically inferred, so they're all available to the compiler at compile time, and it uses Got all it. that type information to get you the performance of a C-sharp program, but with the brevity of a Python program.
1: So you sort of like a variant in Visual Basic, then, that kind of thing. It just does the evaluation on the fly.
3: Right, right. So, well, I'm not too familiar with Visual Basic, but...
1: Uh... That's pretty much what it is. I mean, it's a data type that stands for anything, and you can just go ahead and use it. But when it compiles, then, uh you know, the, the type is inferred. Uh uh-huh. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting. So is there is there a future with dynamic languages? Do you think it's a fit
3: uh, for F-Sharp? I think they've all got advantages and disadvantages. I think F-sharp definitely has, has a really serious chance of making big inroads into scientific computing, and a lot of places in sort of general application development. I think something like web programming would be interesting. So I'm not sure how well F-sharp's going to fare there, because I think dynamic languages have quite an edge.
2: Right. Uh, on the client side, anyway. Well, I, what I meant
1: was, does it make sense for F-sharp to be dynamic? How do you mean? Well, in in the way that, you know, the things you can do with Ruby, like, uh, just, well, I guess you don't have objects in Sharp, do you? Or do you not? I mean, if it's a CLR language, do you have
3: objects? It's got complete support, as far as I know, for the whole of the object-oriented part of .NET, so you can write in the classic object-oriented style. Which it's
1: is, got to, because it's a CLR language.
3: Right, right. And it's it's really great to have that choice. So there are places like GUI programming where object orientation just makes sense, but there are a lot of other places where the functional programming makes sense. And F-sharp gives you that choice. And gives like, you both.
1: So, so I guess, you know, one of the features of dynamic languages people like is the ability to change an object while it's in memory. And so, you know, is that a beneficial thing to F-sharp? Well,
3: that kind of thing would probably be quite difficult to do in F-sharp because it's more like C-sharp in that respect. Right. Um, I haven't actually tried with... You, you mean sort of referring to reflection and stuff like that?
1: Yes, and, and just... Uh the way that you can morph and change objects after they've already been instantiated by adding fields and things like that. I mean, there's a whole bunch of little tricks, sort of like parlor tricks that you can do with uh, dynamic languages. I'm I'm just not sure. I I never thought about the two, functional and dynamic, in the same thought before. So I'm just trying to see what happens when you mix those things together. I
3: think... Probably that there would be a sort of fairly natural split between the two, so you'd probably find that a lot of the time where you're using these kind of reflective properties of dynamic languages in a functional language, you'd probably end up putting functions in your data structure so that you could replace them at a later date, hmm. if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, and I think the I think the role of the functional language is clearly defined and doesn't really benefit from having that kind of morphability, maybe.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's just got different ways of solving the same problems, really.
2: Yeah. I want to jump back to your 250,000 lines of uh, F-sharp <laughs> and, and the fact that, you know, you get a core of that that came up pure. Yeah. And, and, and just sort of, I'm thinking in terms of how I would use F-sharp in a normal app, in a typical application that was largely written in C-sharp. I'm, I'm thinking that all of my WPF code, WCF code, I'm going to leave alone. This is really about algorithmic processing where I've got to do some thinking in the machine. I might be able to write that better in F sharp and I right away jump into those sort of recursive things because they're often as a largely a data centric guy. I've battled the problem of unknown amounts of data where I'm the literally the process of executing this code is going to pull in. I don't know how much data over the process over the course of its execution. This sounds like a natural fit for that.
3: Yeah, that's true. So I heard from the, the Xbox guys who had all these sort of terabytes of data that they really like the lazy streams that F-sharp gives you. And they're, they're completely integrated into the language. They're basically the same as the i that you get in C-sharp, but they're so much easier to work with when you can just map functions over sequences and spot patterns in them and all this kind of stuff. And that's hugely powerful when it comes to trawling through huge data sets because it means that you can write algorithms that just search for the little pieces of local data that they need, and you can just map them across an entire sequence, and it'll sit there plowing through all the data, but it doesn't have to load it all up into RAM at the same time.
2: Right, and and as a data guy, I would be creating temporary tables and staging those extractions piece by piece and then pulling them down. Right. And it, you're describing to me a function that would fetch those related data, that, that related bit of data that would be referenced by another function. Exactly. As those iterations went through and it made decisions, says, oh, I need to know more about this and pull that piece in. I don't have to resolve any of it ahead of time.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly the benefit. So you end up using combinators, which is where you just take a bunch of functions, like library functions, but you, because they're higher order curried functions, you can compose them all in interesting ways. And that's exactly what you do when you're passing languages. And one of the reasons there is that when you're passing, you know, a language or a big data file, it's exactly the same problem. You've got this sort of lazily evaluated sequence that you're just gradually sucking in just as much data as you need in order to, you know, do your reductions or do a bit of analysis.
2: It only pulls what it actually needs. But now you popped a nice word there, combinator. Yeah. And I've and I've seen another one around F sharp called functor too. Functor,
3: <laughs> right? Uh, uh, F sharp doesn't actually have functors. Oh, okay. But it, it simulates them with a, with a different technique, but it certainly has combinators, which are very, very helpful.
2: So, define combinator?
3: So, combinators generally are both higher-ordered and curried functions. And actually, the derivative is an example of, of a combinator again, because...
2: Right, because you passed it a function and it returned a function.
3: Right, but it, also, you can, you can use it to do composition, right? So, I can feed the derivative to itself to get the second derivative.
2: That's recursive.
3: Right. So, well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, it is technically recursive. Yeah.
1: You know that if you look up recursion in the dictionary, you know what it says. See recursion.
3: Hey.
0: All right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty geeky joke. <laughs> uh, so now I start thinking in terms of I would be looking at F sharp in scenarios where I, I can, I'm close to purity, where I'm minimizing the amount of IO interactions, yeah. those, those sorts of scenarios. So one of the things that comes to mind is web services.
3: Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, that's exactly the same sort of uh, problem. You know, it's, it's, got, it's got all the same properties.
2: Yeah, I've got a set of parameters that I'm passing. And, and there's a limit to the sophistication of parameter passing in a web services scenario. And I'm going to get back some kind of result. It's not IO-oriented at all. Yeah. So that seems like F-sharp would be a very nice language for that particular task. Yeah, Although, yeah. If it's a straight up crud request, get me the, the customer, you don't really care. It probably it's won't like.
3: make any difference for that one. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that you can do that's quite interesting, so this is actually another example of a combinator, is called memoization.
2: Memoization.
3: Memoization. I don't okay. know if you've heard of that, but no. you, you might have heard of it in a, in another context. So basically, the idea is you've got this function, and a web service is a perfect example. So your function, for example, it might be doing something very slow, like going to a remote server and fetching a load of data from NASA or on the height elevation of the Earth or something, right. and then returning it or mixing it with other data and returning that to your to your you know client. But memoization just lets you sort of transparently using a combinator say, well, I'm going to take this existing function that does that and I'm going to wrap it with a using memoization to create a new function that does exactly the same thing, but it remembers the previous results that it spat out. Right. So the next time you feed it the same request, it'll return instantaneously with the previous answer.
2: So it's intelligent. I mean, that's very intelligent. I know that the resolution of this function is this value. I only ever compute it once, even though it's probably caught in some kind of iteration where it's going to be called over and over and over again. It's never going to process it again. Exactly. So this is the antithesis of most of what good procedural programmers, really talented guys, you know, Folks that did, I'd done a lot of this work where I've got this huge problem that involves all this data and I take it apart, break it down into its individual elements and execute those elements individually so that I can tune them. And you're telling me that's exactly wrong, that I'm going (laughs) to take the entire problem, describe the whole thing in this language, hand it to you, and you're only going to execute the bits you need to to get the result.
3: That's exactly right, yeah.
2: No wonder I'm it's, confused. It's really, really, <laughs> it's a brain twist. It's the completely opposite way of of what the. It's almost like the more experienced you are in dealing with the languages we've been dealing Hundreds with until till now, being, yeah. the harder you're going to have, the tougher time you're going to have with this because it's asking you to do what you've really stopped doing. You've done the opposite of for a long time. So yeah.
1: I think people who are interested in in uh, in this, and you know, if you've never done any kind of functional programming. Would, uh, wanna look for some examples. Would wanna see some (laughs) sample applications that they can grok real easily. Are there, are there enough of them out there?
3: Uh, There are quite a few. It's certainly growing. F-sharp is a fairly new sort of language, and we've been doing it in in my company for about nine months now, full time. And we've got a page full of some free examples on our site that you can click to straight from the homepage. And also the F-sharp journal has whole applications every month that we describe or every two weeks.
1: Well, we're going to have to put links to those.
3: Yeah, yeah. So just, just FF Consultancy. So they're all from the front page of FF Consultancy. I've been to the FF
2: Consultancy site as I was hunting you down, actually, right. and, a, and, a, and, a, and your call line up, putting the fun in functional since 2005. Ah. <laughs> uh, let me get back to something that you mentioned before, which was concurrency and
1: mutexes and things. And I'm wondering, um, you know, and obviously, and we haven't even really talked about grid all that much, but let's start with let's start with multi-threading. What uh, you know? This is a typical challenge for procedural, for object-oriented, for even heck, it, raw assembly programming. I mean, this is multi multiple core CPUs are everywhere. Obviously, this is a uh, an area that people have to pay attention to, and it's difficult. And even the people who do it well know that they they still don't aren't experts at it. I mean, it's it's a black art multi-threaded programming. Uh, what's what's the experience like in F-Sharp of, of doing multi-threaded programming?
3: So I've, I've really had several different experiences, but there's going to be a big change in the way that f does that. They're, they're introducing a new asynchronous programming format into f that's actually directly integrated into the language, and you can just take existing stuff written in functional styles, and again, you're sort of composing functions, and it will just spawn them all independently and run them all concurrently and know exactly when it can do that from the way that you structure your program. And Don told me this is going to be absolutely fantastic. So I can't wait to see the first examples of it. So that should be really good. I think that draws upon sort of Haskell and Erlang, if you're familiar with Erlang.
1: Well, I'm not, but that doesn't mean our listeners aren't.
3: Ah, okay, yeah. so Erlang's quite a quite a big language in industry, particularly in telecommunications where they're sort of dealing with millions of of calls going on at the same time and massive concurrency, and they all have to be aware of when somebody's hanging up and what resources are free and what's available and going on and all the rest of it. And it basically boils down to having millions of tiny little agents that are each comparatively simple, but they communicate, and between the network of the whole load of them, they can get a very complicated job done and exploit concurrency very well. And so F-Sharp is kind of drawing on the kind of way that Erlang does these things. To come up with a new approach to concurrency, which also runs on the CLR and .net.
1: Now, is this you mentioned the CLR? And in the CLR, uh, we're talking about the asynchronous model uh, in .net, which uses delegates. and And delegates was one of the first things that came to mind when we started talking about passing functions around, because that's how you do it. Is this how F# works? Does it work with delegates?
3: Um, I think F-Sharp doesn't actually compile down to delegates by default, but you can certainly get it to compile certain things to delegates. But you, you do that when you're interested in sort of communicating with a, a C-Sharp program. So if somebody in C-Sharp wants to call some F-Sharp code, you'd dress it up to make it look like a delegate, for example. So
1: the idea of a function is completely f- different in F-Sharp than in other CLR languages.
3: Well, it's, it's implemented differently. Uh, yeah. I mean, the ordinary functions are, are implemented actually exactly the same, Uh, The difference comes when you get uh, closures, which are the results of, say, partial applications of current functions. So like, uh, take that derivative example again. So I've got my derivative combinator, and I feed it my function that it's going to compute the derivative of, and that returns me a function. But that actual internal representation of that function, that kind of function is called a closure, because it's not a normal function. It actually encapsulates, it's captured some of its environment, and the environment that it captures is the function that it's the derivative of, and so that needs to have a different representation. So normally you wouldn't see that, at least if you're programming completely in F-sharp, it's totally transparent. You have no idea. But you need to be aware of these differences when you're interoperating and you've got C-sharp code calling into F-sharp code. And the normal way that you do the, the you know the transaction is by dressing it up and saying, well, this is actually a delegate. Um, but delegates are slightly less powerful, I think. So one thing is you have to explicitly declare the types of delegate in C-sharp, I think. Yeah. And uh, also anonymous delegates are using C sharp and they have a direct equivalent in F sharp as well.
1: So you mentioned derivatives are, are, is it possible to do like real-time calculus? Is this?
3: Yeah, I think there are some people actually already doing that. There there are some people you mean for sort of financial trading?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see an oscilloscope kind of view of uh, real-time data, you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think um, I haven't done any of that myself, but I've, I've heard that people are having great success using F sharp for that. And One of the nice things is the fact that it's got that interactive session, so you can type in code and execute code, and it all happens interactively and tells you what's going on. And you can even sort of spawn DirectX visualizations and games and stuff, and carry on typing code in and editing your game and developing things.
1: This is like a math nerd's dream come true, isn't it?
2: You mentioned Erlang. I mean, the, the big emphasis of Erlang is it is a concurrency a language. It's all about parallel processing in a much more reliable and simpler way than, than the threading model. And yeah. yet, threading permeates all of Windows. You just can't get away from it. So It
3: does, but in the same way you could say that, you know, assembly language or machine code permeates all of Windows, but the idea is to have layers that sit, sit on top of that that hide all of the difficult stuff right. and just present you with a nice, simple, easy-to-use interface, and that's exactly what F-sharp does. So all of this concurrent stuff, all of the Erlang-like stuff and the message passing, mean, it all boils down to the standard mutexes and locks and semaphores and all the rest of it that you get with your typical imperative
2: But the fact that all that code is now in the IL, it's not in your code, is what's going to make your life better.
3: Exactly. That makes life a hell of a lot easier.
2: Yeah. So, uh, in in terms of grid computing, Richard,
1: you said it it seems to lend itself well to to grid computing. How how so? It, can these functions be passed across grids? Is that the idea? Yeah, because it seems to me that they'd be discrete enough to exist on different machines.
3: Yeah. So there's uh, a library called Alchemy, and one of the nice things about F Sharp is that you can marshal. You know, functions and data, and it's very good at manipulating languages, so you can even pass other languages with your data. And you can have these partially applied functions that have captured pieces of state and variables, and you can transfer them all around basically transparently, and provided you write in a sort of distributed style where your your separate threads of concurrent computation are passing messages to each other rather than explicitly using shared memory. Then it, it distributes very nicely across separate computers and across networks and even across the world on the internet.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: And is this something that's built into F sharp or is this a separate package you mentioned?
3: This Alchemy. is now built in, but it hasn't yet been documented.
1: Ah, I see. Now, wh- what about something like Digipede Networks? Do you know who they are?
3: Oh, no, I don't know them. Who are they?
1: So Digipede Networks is a company that makes a, a product called, I think it's called or is it Digipede Networks is the product, Digipede Technologies is the company. Yeah, And, and it's a, essentially a grid uh, computing framework for .NET so that any object with an attribute or, or, or some other way, uh, base class, I believe, can become uh, a grid-enabled uh, object. And then those can just live on different machines and they take care of all the plumbing of the grid.
3: Oh, okay. That's interesting. That that sounds like it might be even higher level still if they sort of take care of which entities need to know about which other entities, who they're dependent upon.
1: Well, the, the, from what we, we talked to them, and they say you do have to write the programs such that you are you are distributing the load yourself to this object and that object and this object, right. but it does take care – you know, they sort of do what the promise of remoting was in terms of getting those values across the across the network and across the app domains – to their objects and back.
3: I think there's been a huge amount of research on how to do things where they automatically you know do load balancing and distribution, but as far as I can tell it's, yep. it's basically impossible because only the programmer really has enough information about which parts of the program are going to take time and which you know, where, where can you break your program up such that if you introduce message passing there, it doesn't, you know, have a completely catastrophic effect on the overall performance of the application?
1: Well, I'd be really interested in, in, uh, seeing your evaluation of this and how the two things fit, would fit together.
3: Yeah, I'll go and check it out. So what was the company called again? Uh,
1: digi- search for Digipede Technologies. I think it's digipede.com.
3: Okay, fantastic. I'll go and have a look.
2: So, th- but the other side of this whole thing is that, F-sharp, by its nature, by the way that you're declaring these boundaries in the in the functional calls, those are innate, independent elements that can be processed separately. Yeah. So whether it's going onto its own thread or it's going onto its own core or it's going to its own box, it makes it's not it going to make any difference. It doesn't because you don't have a lot of shared variables
1: on the in the heap that have to be managed and, and locked. Yeah, if that stuff is pure,
2: especially. Right. Especially it, if it's pure. It shouldn't make any difference at all.
3: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the only syntactic difference is, is an exclamation mark. So where you uh-huh. normally write let f of x equals this thing, you like write let exclamation mark f of x equals this thing, and that makes a concurrent version instead. Oh, right. Oh wow. Well yeah. and, nice. and it's the
2: thing, is you could write this code in C sharp. Sure. It could be written in VB.net. You've done it. I know. Right, I'm you've Sure done we it. have. It's just very difficult. It's just easier. That's all it is. is, yeah. is exactly, a very yeah. clear piece of syntax for a developer to say, This is an independent executing piece of code. Yeah. Well, what haven't we talked about here, John?
3: I thought you, were, uh, you touched on Windows Presentation Foundation earlier, and I thought that was actually an ideal example for the kind of thing – I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you're developing in WPS, but I think often a lot of programs developed in that would be ideally suited to f for the same reason, again, that you've got this sort of document structure. You've got your buttons and your icons, your GUI layout – You've got maybe visualizations that you're running of, of, you know, graph network layout or something. And all of those things break down to just being trees.
2: When you bring up, and you, so you bring up an interesting point. I immediately just said, well, F sharp's not good for IO. And I'm wrong in the sense that WPF, which is really an IO oriented technology is our- also stream oriented. XAML is a stream of data that describes a visualization and F sharp works well with streams. Yeah, and as John just said, it, it it's a big tree of objects. You yeah. Know? yeah, So it yeah. should it should deal with. It, it's also, it's more like WPF has come to functional languages, not huh. the functional languages have come to visualization. Yeah, interesting.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
2: Um, I know one element we haven't mentioned at all, which is uh, F Sharp working with data specifically. And I'm thinking in terms of if you're going to talk about new technologies, talk about Link. Because oh, I think yeah. Link has got a, a, another character, again, that works well in this sort of stream-oriented, functionally-oriented yeah. expression.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've had a quick play with Link, and the part that I was actually using was the um, the meta compiler. So it's got its own compiler in there, and you can sort of give it a sort of DOM description of a tree of a piece of program, and it'll compile it down to the IL, and then you can execute it at will. And that provides a very easy way to sort of write a compiler. And I thought, you know, you have to have a as if you're using f sharp uh-huh. and sure enough in sort of 10 lines of code you can write something that you you can just bring up a window you type in mathematical expressions and they get compiled down to il and then executed which means you can run them extremely fast
2: yeah maybe it's a functional world and we're just living in it that's maybe it's the matrix right we're,
3: well all, it's definitely going that way
2: well, you know, I, and I think back, I've been a programmer long enough that I remember when object orientation was a clever idea that was never actually going to work in the real world. Hmm. And it seems like it's functional languages turn at showing that they can really work in the real world with real applications. And we're seeing them integrated into the tools we're already using. Well, the
1: natural question that comes out of that, Richard, and this is for John, is, you know, the, it seems to be kind of for uh, uh, hmm, math nerdy. You know what I mean? Whereas I think object orientation is logical enough that, you know, uh, you don't have to have too much math in order to grok that. What about functional programming? Is this really, I mean, it seems so math-centric that if you don't like math, you're probably not going to get much out of it. Is that a fair assessment?
3: Well, I it's... It's difficult. I think probably a lot of it is just that it looks that way because it, it basically was born out of mathematics and the people who invented it. Yeah. And so the people who've written all the tutorials and given all the examples—they're all very mathematical examples. Right. It?
1: Just like, Yeah. That
3: even goes—if you look at the F-sharp distribution itself, it's got examples in there and it's got some really complicated mathematical examples. So I didn't have a clue what it was talking
0: about at <laughs> first. Read
3: and so you sort of look at this stuff and you think, "Oh, this is very nasty," but... Actually, I mean, now now that I've come to study it more and sort of study more of the, the theoretical aspects of functional programming, the way that it looks at things, in a lot of ways, it, it's actually sort of giving you a, a transposed view of the world to object orientation. So in object orientation, you take your problem, and the first thing you do is you divide it up into separate classes. And right. then you say, well, this class inherits from this class, and this is a little class hierarchy. And then you say, I, I need the following functions, but you every single function that you make, you, you bash it and you split it up into loads of little pieces and you put a tiny piece of each function in each class and that's a member function and you say, well this all of these different classes are basically implementing the same function. So I have to put that function in, in the interface or in the abstract base class that it's inheriting from. Right. And really functional programming just gives you the opposite view of exactly the same thing. So you don't break up by class. You break up by function, which right. means you get a whole bunch of separate functions, and you get a single sum type that represents your class hierarchy. And each function then does a pattern match over it and says, well, effectively what it's saying is, well, if I'm given this object of this class, then do this thing. And if I'm given this object of this class, then do this thing. But the code is all contained by function instead of by class.
2: Yeah. So this could also be a a different kind of domain-oriented approach where I'm looking at the series of tasks I need to do, declare those as functions, and then push down into the hierarchy to execute.
3: Right. So, I mean, if if your problem just naturally breaks up well into classes, then object orientation is the way to go. But a lot of problems just naturally break up into functions. So, like I described, all the things where you're you're manipulating trees and you're going to apply yourself when you go into a route. And nobody in their right mind would implement that stuff in an object-oriented style. But, I mean, actually, a lot of people do.
1: So maybe you, it's not so much that you have to be a math nerd to appreciate it, but like you said, it it came out of that. I, I sort of think of that as like the same reason why C sharp dominates .dot net is because the red people in Redmond are mostly C plus plus programmers, uh, you know, in, historically, and so C sharp naturally becomes their language of choice. Whereas you know VB is really taken on by the business community. So uh, that's a good place to leave it. I think. Uh, any any last uh, last minute things we want to touch on before we
3: hang up uh, here, no, John? I think, I think I've covered pretty much everything I can think of. Uh, there, there are loads of examples on my site. So we've got a, a you know a ray tracer, which is a bit mathematical, but we've got a Sudoku solver. Ah. Oh, and we've got uh, a bunch of different, and they're all complete applications. And I mean, like the Sudoku solver, I think is hundred lines of code. Oh, I gotta and the check that out. Is about hundred lines of code. Oh, as you well.
1: you push a Sudoku. You push button. my buttons, man. Dude, <laughs> I, I, You know, anytime there's downtime, I pull out my phone and I'm playing Sudoku, and anybody knows that. Uh, okay, John, thank you. It's been a fascinating talk, and I hope we shed some light on functional programming and F# sharp for the, our listeners. Always, uh, always, uh, always fun to do these sort of derivative. Uh, uh, things that you know most people aren't thinking about every day.
3: No, oh, great. Thanks for having me on the
1: show. It's been brilliant. Excellent, John. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .net rocks. <music> .net rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering,